Hi, welcome to Season 2 of the Silverline Podcast, an audio version of our video streams that we hold weekly. They're edited a little bit to make them a little more concise. My name is Roland Mann. I'm the head honcho at Silverline, and we have a great time making fun comics that we think that you'll enjoy. So thank you for listening, and maybe go check out some of our comics if you haven't already. Ladies and gentlemen, comic book and storytelling fans across the universe, this is Silver Lines Wednesday Wham! Show, and I'm going to jump right in it. We are joined tonight by Mr. Kevin Van Hook, artist, comic book writer, and a prolific storyteller. And we are going to roll right in because I want to spend as much time as we can with this fine gentleman. First of all, we're humbled. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Barb, for making this connection. And uh, we've got folks out there who love to learn. We love to learn on this show, and we want to learn everything we can about you. And I am going to give you as much time as you'd like to talk. If you want to spend the whole hour and a half talking, we would love to listen. I, we have some questions. Um, we want to learn about your career. We want to learn about the ins and outs of uh, being in the industry, about creating comic books, about being in the film industry, about writing, about uh, about arting, and all those things that are associated with uh, creating uh, amazing stories. So before I forget, uh, Silverline is brought to you by the Daytona Beach Comic Convention. So thank you to all those folks at the convention and for supporting Silverline and supporting us. And we've got a great crew of people that are going to be there in September. So if you're anywhere near uh, the United States of America, North America, or this hemisphere, we would love for you to come to Orlando and say hello. We've got a great crew. And then this weekend, uh, Mr. Rory Boyle and I, Roland, uh, as well, we will be uh, in uh, Pittsburgh uh, for the Three Rivers Comic Con. And uh, thank you to those folks for having us there. We will have a silver line table set up with all of our stories ready to be purchased and signed by uh, some of the artists. So join us if you can. Mr. Van Hook, thank you for being here. I would love for you to get started. Um, start wherever you would like chronologically. Um, how you got into comic books or storytelling. And then um, give us a, a timeline of how that morphed into your career as it is right now. Well, I've been at it for a while, so I'll uh, <laughs> I'll try to not uh, give you every boring detail. But but I, uh, as as a kid, I was reading comics. I, I uh, actually, believe it or not, one of the very first comic books I ever picked up was uh, um, Swamp Thing with Batman in it. So it was Bernie Wrightson's, I believe it's Swamp Thing Ooh. Seven. I would screw it up, but I think that's right. And uh, I was eight years old, and I knew it just looked cool, and. Yeah. Then um, my mom, um, so I bought a few books around that time, local convenience store. This is right at the edge of 20, 25 cent cover prices. And um, um, I remember one of the very first books I looked at uh, was A Werewolf by Night written by Marv Wolfman. So <laughs> it made the comment that, you know, a wolfman writing a werewolf or a werewolf <laughs> written by a wolfman. I have a piece of so original cool. art I should show you from that Oh yeah, that's awesome. Ooh, cool. And so I, um, I love this stuff. And then didn't really, we moved out in the country. It wasn't really easy to get comic books. I would, I would go with my mom had a doctor's appointment or something. I'd go to a drugstore and that kind of thing. And um, but a buddy of my brother's in high school lent him a year run of the Fantastic Four, and it was um, the one sixties, one seventies. 
Um, mm. So it was a lot of George Perez and Richard Buckler and that kind of stuff. And I just fell in love with that. And then uh, we moved to Detroit, uh, where I'd lived a little bit. And um, this, having moved from Kentucky and Indiana. And so in Detroit, I got the nerve to go out to a real comic book store and went to Comic Kingdom. Um, and um, that became a weekly thing. And so I would buy comic books and I would um, talk to other people who were into them and I collected and I put them in little plastic bags and did all the stuff that kids start doing when they collect comics. And I uh, would convince one of my buddies to ride the bus with me because it was two city buses to get out there <laughs> in uh, Detroit when I was 12. Um, but, oh, wow. Um, yeah. Of course, looking back on it, I, I fearless had no concerns whatsoever. Say, what year was that? <laughs> but, uh, but we, uh, um, I did, so I did that. And then uh, when I was 14, I got to meet Keith Pollard and um, uh, Arvell Jones and Aubrey Bradford and Mike Vosberg at a comic book convention put on by a couple of kids that I knew who were like 16 years old. And uh, wow. Wow. One was a, a guy named Brent Carpenter, and the other one was Alan Oldham. And um, actually went to high school with Brent, although he was a year or two older than me, a couple years older than me. But um, I always felt like I went to school with Alan because I would always see him together, but I, he went somewhere else. And uh, But <laughs> our, his path and mine crossed a lot more over the years. Both of us ended up working for different comic book companies, the same comic book companies at different times. And so uh, we both ended up doing stuff at Caliber Press and innovation and amazing stuff like that. So um, met those guys, got influenced. Uh, I was definitely bitten by the bug, showed them my stuff, um, got some feedback. Uh, Keith Pollard was kind enough to ask me if I'd considered a job in plumbing by any chance. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I still give him grief for that. I, I, um, I got a lot of stuff like that too when I first started out 30 years ago. The, uh, we all he, did. Was, yep. uh, he was actually very nice, but he, but he was that was his sense of humor. And um, but three years later, I was working. So I was working at Pacific Comics uh, when I was 17 and drawing. And uh, I had met Roger McKenzie, also at a comic book convention. Roger was a, uh, became a good friend and a mentor. And uh, he, he helped me get work at Pacific. And then I did stuff for Eclipse. And uh, I had a, a habit of working for companies that went out of business very quickly uh, <laughs> in the 80s. And then uh, um, did my own book called Jack Frost for Amazing Comics that I wrote and drew. And a book with Roger called Ninja Bots. Um, because if ninjas are popular and robots are popular, ninja robots are really double. Oh, I thought you said ninja, <laughs> ninja butts. butts. <laughs> that's a different <laughs> Probably popular. <laughs> no, that's that's my car comic, Barbara. You know that. <laughs> yeah, I'll draw an issue. Um, that's um, those sneaky ninja butts. But, um, I uh, so I did stuff for Amazing, and then they went away, and then. I helped David Campetti form Innovation Publishing. I was the original production manager and art director. And you were probably you were probably my art director then at one point. I, I, I left fairly quickly. Dave and I were good friends, and in order to maintain that, I had to quit. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, okay. We um, uh, so I stayed um, probably less than six months from the time we started the company. So from like. Ah. November till I was there well 95 months, that. late March. So, 
And, um, but I was reverse engineering a color separation method that um, Bill Dubay and, and Michelle Wrightson and, and um, um, trying to think who, who, what her name was, but it was, it was um, Bill Dubay's wife as well. I had worked on with Richard Corbin back at Warren and it was painting in shades of gray on acetate and shooting halftones to make color separations. And they had done done a system where they had done this um, literally with, with one shade, one value per piece of acetate. So meaning if you're trying to represent 25% gray, you do a light gray, and that's that one overlay, and now you do a fifty percent gray, and that's that overlay. So if you if you were, if you knew anything about about CMYK color, it was mixed up, made up of various percentages of cyan, magenta, yellow, and black, and mm-hmm. and we were basically approximating um, Kamiko's color palette, another comic book company I did a little bit of stuff for that that they um, um, uh, before they went away again. Uh, I had a whole <laughs> a whole host of books that I, I was either in the middle of or or finished before that didn't see the light of day. But um, but anyway, I did this color separation thing, and I continued to do that for innovation from my home studio, and then did some stuff for Dark Horse and some other companies, and then I became the art director and production manager for Caliber Press. And while there, I uh, wrote and drew the Rocky Horror Picture Show and. and uh, <laughs> and i did um uh, they they published my uh, new adventures of my jack frost character in in two different series called frost one was a mini series called frost the dying breed and uh unfortunately the the gulf war broke out and the gary came to me and said he didn't think it made sense for us to print the fourth issue of four and uh, because it was a losing money proposition because his sales were just tanking and uh, so there are three of those four issues <laughs> in print. And so at least I was doing better. And then uh, I um, went back into graphic design for about a year and then uh, decided to um, send off samples to Valiant Comics, Marvel, and DC. And I had some stuff going with DC where, as a writer. And I called to follow up on my samples at Valiant and I reached Shooter. I reached Jim Schroeder and he told me, um, you know, Kevin, we, we, we receive hundreds, if not thousands of, of submissions every week. And, and uh, there's no way that I would know, you know, which one of these in this massive mountain of submission envelopes is yours. And I said, mine's a nine by 12 black envelope. <laughs> there's a nine by 12 black envelope here. Hang on. Yeah, that's you. Okay. All right. Wow. Well, you're pretty good. You know, you're too flat before me, but you're, you're pretty good. You know, I don't really have anything for you right now, but, uh, but great work and keep it up. And I said, well, if you ever need anybody that has a strong print and pre-press background and knows the way around Max and desktop publishing, that's what I do for my day job. And he said, let me put you on with my buddy, Bob. And Bob Layton got on the phone and we talked <coughs> and without telling you the, all the details. He, uh, it, it boiled down to him saying, if you can do everything you say you can do, I'll hire you. And me saying, make room for my desk. Cause I ain't bluffing. <laughs> oh boy. Um, I actually ended up literally borrowing 400 bucks from my sister and taking Greyhound to New York. And 
interviewed and asked for X amount, and they gave me uh, two or three thousand more, and for a year, and then paid to move my wife and two little boys uh, out there. We wow. found it in Jersey City. Um, at Innovation, I'd become friends with a fellow named Paul Curtis, and Paul was, is Maggie Thompson's brother. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the yeah, yeah. Maggie's good friend. Yeah. We're both Wisconsinites. Say it one more time. I said Maggie's a good friend. We're both Wisconsinites here. Oh, very nice. Yeah, I, I've always thought the world of, of all of them, but of Maggie as well. But Paul, uh, Paul was living in New York and working for Carol Kalish. Um, yep. Had been working for Carol Kalish at that time, and I, I, I don't have my timing exactly right when she passed, but I think this is just after she passed. But um, he was kind enough to let me stay over, and we went and got a newspaper, and I found an apartment, and two weeks later, my wife and little boys and I were living in Jersey City, and... Uh, from Indianapolis, which was quite a culture shock for everyone. I've lived in Detroit, but uh, uh, so I'd, I'd lived in a in a big city that was a metropolitan place. Um, the uh, but she was largely had, we'd lived in Kentucky and Wheeling, West Virginia area for innovation. Oh, I was born in Wheeling. Where you? I love Wheeling. Yeah, yeah Dave Campetti's from Moundsville. Our, our office was on on Jackson Street. In, Who, who's from Moundsville? David Campetti. David Campetti. And uh, oh, that's was, that's that's where I have my family reunion at Grandview yeah. Park every year. Well, I've been there. I've been there. We we actually technically world. lived in St. Clairsville, right over the river. That's Ohio. There, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which yeah. ticked off the Chamber of Commerce of Wheeling because they were partially funding innovation and. <laughs> It wasn't explained to me that part of what they're trying to do is bring money into that city. And I moved there and I thought, well, I'd much rather live over here. (laughs) (laughs) They got a mall over there. They had a mall over there. That was actually, and that's where I saw Batman in 1989 on my birthday. It was was definitely um, a ride. So at Valiant, I um, worked with Shooter for about three months and uh, then he was let go. There were some machinations within the company and Multiple sides to the story, but the bottom line is, is he was no longer part of the company, and I had been starting to co-write with him, and uh, I ended up um, inheriting those titles, and then a few months later, I, I developed Bloodshot, and uh, so arrived there uh, March 28th, and on November 17th, Bloodshot 1 came out, and uh, so in a very, very short amount of time, uh, it... Uh, um, you know, went from taking the Greyhound bus into creating a comic book that sold a million copies. So it was it was a, a whirlwind. So after uh, twenty years of working, you were an overnight success. Ten, right? After ten years, literally, <laughs> it was. I was twenty. I was yeah, turned twenty-seven that year. Isn't and, that the uh, way it usually works? <laughs> well, that's what I always said, and it was so funny because when I they that was something that the Steve Mazarski, the publisher, liked to say was that I was a homegrown overnight success. And I'm like, I've literally been at this for 10 years. <laughs> but, um, but because I had been at it, it I had a skill set. So I knew a lot about printing. I knew a lot about pre-press and design. And so I was a production manager, but I also was a creator. And so I, I was helping ink books. I got to help ink Ditko on some stuff, and oh, uh, which was cool. I got to meet Ditko. Um, they uh, had a... Um, you know, Valiant was a great time for me, um, and and for a lot of us. I mean, it was a uh, I, I, my timing was great for once in my life. I got there when they were starting to do a little better than they had been, selling maybe forty thousand copies or something. 
25,000 on average to within a year, our average sales were like four and 500,000, uh, which was just insane. And, uh, um, and then, so we, and we had a lot of good, good people there, a lot of good creators and good marketing people. And uh, they, they did stuff like grownups in my mind, which was like, they were selling real ads so we had a claim in video game company and places like that advertising with us and paying real money and and so yes, real so money not, is not exchanging. Nice uh, well, just it's one of the things. Traditionally, most comic book companies I've been a part of never had anything but house ads. Really, so it was <clears throat> at, at Innovation or Caliber or Amazing, any of those places. It was really just ads for our other books. It wasn't. Uh, you know, we, we treated it, we had a, an ad agency sales guy who went and met with ad agencies. And so we had Upper Deck and these places that wanted to have eyeballs on our, uh, on their product. That's a smart move. Yeah. It was very yeah. smart. And I, they, they were doing that before I got there. I was just very impressed. My biggest contribution to them besides being a creative person was uh, organization. Because when I got there, they just really, they, it, it had grown very organically. And so there wasn't just some of the basic things you needed to do to organize producing eight books a month. And so, you know, we went from a great big flat file cabinet to an individual flat file cabinet for every title uh, that had, you know, script letters, pencils, inks, colors, and so forth. And as opposed to five drawers that everything goes in. (laughs) And, uh, uh, and that was a big deal. It was just an enormous deal. It was a big deal that nobody till that point was keeping a checklist. And so they would have weekly meetings and you'd hear some hear Fred Pierce or who's now the head of the current Valiant, um, who was our, uh, our operations manager, our office you know, operations manager. And he handled production, getting things printed and so forth, who would say, so, you know, where do we stand on Harbinger seven the current issue? Yeah. And Bob would go, it's like, we're good. Yeah, we're good. We're good. <laughs> and Fred would go, yeah. Yeah, Bob, what does that mean? And he's like, well, what do you mean? Well, how many pages of pencil? Let's just start with that. And, and so then once I was there, I had my little notebook, with, which today would be a spreadsheet, but it was yep. essentially a check mark besides page one with pencil <laughs> or a date. So we knew yeah, when th- this, is, this is something I, I, I always pound uh, uh, relentlessly to wannabe comic book artists that they have to keep in mind that first comics is a business mm-hmm. and you have to run it like a business. Um, and if you aren't organized uh, and think in a business sense, you, it's, you're never going to succeed. No, it, it's, it's uh, like anything else. You have to look at it and say, what is the goal here? Is the goal that I'm creating a, a vanity press piece that I just want to do because I want to do it. In which case I don't care if it takes me a year to produce the first issue or whatever and the next one might take a year or two, then that's okay. But if you're doing it as a ongoing financial concern with the idea of, of making money and doing more of it and employing other people and, and you know becoming somebody who actually ha- has the respect of distributors and retailers and, and other creators, you have to treat it like a business. Very much so. Kevin, I wanted to back up just a little. I'm sorry. Um, when you got your but foot, I'm, in but the- I'm only to 1992. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Put a pin there. This is this is some good some storytelling. We're gonna, we're gonna flash back when you got your foot in the door. Um, was that as a writer, uh, as a penciler or inker? What 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 got you noticed first? Penciling. And then penciling. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So initially, I was known as a penciler, and 
it really wasn't until uh, so so in 1986 when I created Jack Frost, my thing was <clears throat> had been hey, nobody's writing stuff for me to draw. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, you know, I'm just waiting around for this stuff. And it's like, and I'd, I'd always admired Frank Miller specifically as, as a, I, I felt that Frank was a brilliant writer and a, and a brilliant storyteller and a pretty good draftsman. Mm-hmm. Um, meaning I, I didn't love his, his drawing as well, much as I did the emotional aspect of what he did and the storytelling aspect of what he did, mm-hmm. but, uh, as opposed to his anatomy and that kind of thing, where I looked at people like, um, uh, Gene Colan with his, his beautiful lighting and, and drama and Gene Day and Paul Galassi with their realism and cinematic storytelling and, and that kind of thing. But Miller was this wonderful hybrid of somebody who could write and draw. And so I kind of wanted to be him in that sense. And uh, initially I was heavily influenced by Al Williamson. I left this out, but when I was 19, I moved to uh, Holmesdale, Pennsylvania to be Al Williamson's assistant. Ooh. And I got there and we'd already made the deal. And, and uh, sadly, my wife and I had just lost a little baby. She had lived only a day. And so we were kind of kind of starting over in that sense as well. And we were very young. We'd gotten married extremely young. And we um, uh, got there and the week that Star Wars was canceled, history. And so he couldn't use me as an assistant and he was trying to find work himself. And he had thought the whole time that that week or so prior that, that, uh, well, it's, it's, it, 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 they're not going to really cancel it. And so he thought I would have had work. And so he didn't tell me, Hey, don't move out here. And, um, uh, and he was very kind and very generous with his time. And we, he, um, sat with me and went over some stuff and that kind of thing. But I ended up, um, doing uh, highlights for children illustrations because it just happened to be that that their editorial office was in that little town. And uh, uh, my wife and I were walking down church street because it was as close as I felt like going to a church at that point. And I saw a sign on the side of this Victorian house that said highlights for children and went in and turned out that that's was really where they did hidden picture puzzles and stuff like that. And that for a little bit. And um, uh, but I drew. And so it wasn't until 86 that I I took myself seriously as a writer as well. And Roger McKenzie, to be fair, he had encouraged me because he 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 felt I was writing as good as as, he felt my writing was ready. And so he was pushing me to L.A. Syndicate, who he was doing some comic strips for. And he was pushing me to Pacific to write. And uh, when we got the deal, um, I I should I should clarify the Dave Campetti connection. So uh, Dave, Roger did a book called Sunrunners uh, with Pat Broderick for Pacific, and that was packaged by uh, David Campetti and Associates. And David, from from Wheeling, um, from his office in Wheeling, he um, was at a Chicago Comic Con in '86, and I met him. And, I <laughs> and he said, um, "I had three three offers that weekend to publish Jack Frost." So I had a company called Hot Comics, and, yeah, uh, Joe and I had Amazing, and I'm trying to remember who the other one was. It was somebody that didn't last, but we, um, but I went with Dave, and got home, and then he called me and said, "If you can get me a finished cover for Jack Frost one by Monday morning, FedEx, 
I'll uh, I'll have it solicited, and we're going to bring it out through um, uh, Serious Comics. Was the idea Juan Colado, and um, uh, and then he called like an hour later and said, "And if you can get me another cover for <laughs> you're doing a good imitation of him, by the thank, way." Thank you. <laughs> I, I can actually do it a little better, but I'm pulling back because he might see this. <laughs> and uh, we won't tell. Um, but he, but he. Uh, he said if I could get him another one and do Ninja Bots, he would get that solicited too. So I did two covers over the weekend, FedExed them out, and uh, and they were solicited. Uh, but at the last minute, uh, he made a deal with Scott Rosenberg, who was publishing, uh, who wanted to publish and was starting Amazing Comics. And yeah. uh, um, and so that's what ended up happening was we came out from Amazing. Scott started Amazing and Wonder and. He owned um, comic book distribution companies, Sunrise, an American distribution. And then uh, there was a lot of machinations and melodrama a few months later. And um, it brief- they briefly started up another venture, and then it just kind of all died. And then that, uh, that was my, my mid-80s experience in a nutshell. But, but it was at that same, same Comic-Con. Say it again, please. I was at that same. Uh, oh, I, I know. We, we, that was we my met, first Chicago Comic Con. Yeah, we we met at eighty six. Yeah. 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 No, yeah. I remember. The I wanted to ask you too um, if you knew a. Uh, do you know an entertainment lawyer named Will, William Ramsey? Bill do Ramsey? I? Mm-hmm. The name sounds familiar, but I don't know him. Okay. So no, just a few I don't know years where ago. I know it from. No. Now, a few years ago, I ran into him on some business, and he's saying that I had done comic books. He had said uh, he had mentioned your name, and uh, and mm. hadn't thought about oh. it until till I saw you. I hope your, that's I hope that's good. Do you owe your money? Oh, you owe money, Rob? <laughs> <laughs> but I, yeah, I don't know. Now, I he, didn't he, have any it. money then, so I don't know. <laughs> but uh, I, I, it's I think, possible I did meet him, and it's just. That's eighty six. How yeah, long ago is that? You know, yeah. uh, or or that era? And well, no. So this, this, if this I saw a picture of him, I might go, "Oh, yeah, that guy." Now, so, this conversation was with a, the lawyer with somebody that I was working with about five or six years ago. But, uh, okay. I, hmm. so, um, but yeah, Ramsey, I just. Uh, but but during that period, I started writing more, and so even though Roger was listed as the writer on Ninja bots, he kind of deferred to me to actually just write a lot of it. And he just sort of edited and tweaked because there you go. I ended up doing a lot of stuff with Japanese mythology and stuff. And it wasn't his bag. And I was really into ninjutsu and, and oh, you and Aaron would get along yeah, yeah, with, the, yeah. with the Japanese mythology. He <laughs> loves mm-hmm. that. So we still have our pin in 1991, <laughs> uh, but uh, what do you, what, what do you enjoy? So the version here, writing, drawing, do do they both share the same space in your heart, or do you? Uh, is one does one come more naturally to you? Does one is one easier or more enjoyable? I love drawing. The for me, drawing uh, uh, when I'm at my best, it takes every fiber of my being, uh, and for me to write comes naturally. So to hmm. so in '92 when I got to Valiant and then. You know, it became clear that I could draw and I could ink, and I was offered a book at Marvel, and and you know, Valiant had an understandable, very clear uh, edict that if I was on staff or anybody was on staff, we couldn't be freelancing for the competition. 
And I got that. I understood that. So it, so it was really weird for me to actually call up an editor at Marvel and say, I can't do this. And I can't. <laughs> but yeah. After years of trying to get in the door. Yeah. <laughs> and, but I was writing Flash Gordon. So what happened was I had done samples for King Features to draw Secret Agent Corrigan, which was Al Williamson's old strip that was created by Alex Raymond. And I, uh, he and Archie had done it for 13 years. And uh, right, and that's what led into him doing Star Wars with Archie. And I, uh, and they, they loved the samples and they wanted me to do it. And um, then they, they talked to George Evans and George decided he didn't want to retire. George was an EC comics guy, he was a brilliant artist who at that point was actually still drawing the strip. And, uh, and at that point, um, I believe, yeah, so basically that was the deal there. So I got a call from King Feature saying, I can't give you a book, a strip to draw, but how do you feel about writing another one of the Raymond strips? And I said, sure. And it was Flash Gordon. And I ended up writing the Sunday strip for a couple of years. Wow. Until, until Valiant said, it doesn't look good for you to be writing stuff for other people. I said, <laughs> They're a newspaper thing, and and uh, and they gave me grief. And I and at that point, I had an, enough clout that I said, "Well, up my page rate enough that it makes a difference for me to give it up, and I'll, I'll quit." <laughs> <laughs> so it, um, but it was uh, it was a fascinating time. I, I loved writing the strip, but I, I have to admit, writing writing three books a month minimum and a comic strip and being the executive editor and vice president of the company and having two little kids and a wife <laughs> that uh, it was a little wacky for a, a lot bit. of flaming chainsaws to juggle one more time <laughs> a lot of flaming chainsaws to juggle it was just yeah. of, of i mean i was i've always been good at multitasking but it's um, it was one of those things where i found myself starting to, to do a split schedule. So I would come home, have dinner, spend time with the wife and kids, go to bed at like nine when the kids went to sleep and then wake up at three in the morning and write for two or three hours and then go back to sleep. Yeah. And that worked great until I sat there. And, and at the time I was writing Eternal Warrior, Bloodshot and Solar Man of the Atom and Flash Gordon. And I just started writing and I remember distinctly saying, Page 17, panel one, long horizontal panel, we see uh, Eternal Warrior walk in the door and there is Flash Gordon. I realized I I have to back off a little bit or slow down, (laughs) but uh, uh, or my stories are going to stop making sense. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But I ended up um, because I was uh, writing a lot of stuff, and then Acclaim Entertainment, which was our client who had been buying advertising, decided that they would rather buy our company. They bought Valiant. And uh, for 65 million. And that was a good point for me to kind of say, I, I think I want to go teach myself how to make movies. And uh, uh, I made a deal with Valiant to, to write exclusively for them for two years. So I knew I had an income. And my wife was a colorist, and I had developed digital coloring for them and digital lettering. We did the first, I, I, the first fonts and, and stuff at that time. Um, uh, digital fonts um, that were commonly being used, where we actually used them on regular production books. And we did digital coloring. And so I left and we moved to San Diego and uh, started my own company called Van Hook Studios. And we did a lot of comic book coloring and trading card packaging design and 
because I had become very familiar with the printing process for Chromium, which was what we did for Bloodshot One and a bunch of our books, I uh, my studio specialized in Chromium print and preprints, and so we did a lot of lots and lots of comic book covers and trading cards and toy packaging and stuff like that for a few years. And all the while with me teaching myself how to make movies and do visual effects. We're going to break in right here for uh, some comments. Aaron, do you want to share share the comments? Oh, they're actually people. I'm sorry. I was usually makes a sound. It does not make a sound. (laughs) I'm sorry. Kevin is a cool dude. Yeah. <laughs> I got. I, I know this one, this cover he's talking about. I got an Eternal Warrior Hulk 181 homage cover from him last year. Very cool. Oh, very cool. Thank cool. you very much. Thanks, Southern Comic yeah. Geek. So I keep my hand yeah. in drawing. Um, over the years, mostly my drawing it tends to be storyboarding. Okay. So I storyboarded movies like The Thirteenth Warrior, and I did a lot of stuff for. Um, a lot of stuff, oddly enough, for Discovery Channel and for Disney pilots and for Fox pilots uh, when I first got into the business. But we, um, uh, uh, but but what I do today is I will I do commissions, and so I'll, and especially when it was when the blood in that time running up to the Bloodshot movie coming out, uh, there was a lot of Bloodshot sketches, a lot of people wanting a, an original sketch. Oh yeah, no doubt. Kind of yeah. Yeah. Wasn't wasn't Bloodshot wasn't ever like a ninja. Wasn't there one that was like, it was called Rai? Yeah. So what what happened was originally there was a book called Rai, and that was set in in the future. And so when we created Bloodshot, the idea was a backstory that 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 character Rai actually has the blood of heroes within him that actually originated in this guy back in our time period. Okay, because I remember they both had the sort of white skin and the red Thoughts. Yeah, I remember there was they looked like there's some sort of connection. I, th- I read was. some of the stuff. I, I did read some Bloodshot. I think Ninjak. Mm-hmm. I read some I of that. Stuff. Yeah, I also yeah. co-created Ninjak. So oh, did yeah. you really? Yeah, I like Ninjak. I like I like the Bloodshot. Um, yeah. Yeah, Rai was. Um, um, I, I think they were all written by by Jim Shooter. I they uh, but he had started and Bob wrote and I had a very tiny hand in uh, a book called Rai Zero, which was our. Um, it's a really kind of cool book. It's a it's a white cover with a red circle and a black silhouette of a rye standing. You think it's rye standing there? It's actually bloodshot. Um, uh, okay. And that that what was cool about that comic book was it laid out the timeline of everything that's going to happen between now and forty four hundred. So it laid out that there will be this character named Bloodshot, and this is what he will be, and there will be this character named that Shadow Man will die in in nineteen ninety nine, and that Sting from Harbinger, one of our books, uh, will disappear in, in 2029. So this was all this stuff was stated, and we saw these little moments, these little panels. And, of course, Bob and I are sitting around going, it's like, so what happens there? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> We're making up as we go along. We know something We're happens when we get into it. And so what was yeah. cool when I created a book called The Visitor, which I was really proud of, that uh, Bernard Chang did with me, and John Ross, we we, we did uh, two issues a month, and they alternated. Um, the visitor, the punchline to it was that this character who seemed to be more powerful than any of our valiant characters, and he was the, the original two issue introduction to him was drawn by Brian Hitch, which is just beautiful stuff that he did called yeah. Visitor versus the Valiant Universe, long before Authority and all that kind of stuff, um, and or the Ultimates. But he it um, but the punchline was that this character that we think is an alien Superman with a, with bug eyes and, and 
all this and three fingers is really this character from Harbinger. He's really Pete Stanchek from uh, from Harbinger, but he's this is it wasn't where he went when he disappeared in 2029. It's when he went, and so oh. he went back into our timeline, and then that was, uh, and it, this is this is him as an old man who's been through hell. So. That sounds cool. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> oh, go ahead. I, I, I remember the variant stuff being very tightly woven together. I remember as as, a, as storytelling, it was always something I felt like. You know, and maybe this came from Jim Shooter, but I felt like there was a lot more story there. Something to sink well, my teeth. Well, I, mean, I, uh, I, I will never take away anything that, that Jim brought to the table. Jim yeah. brought, uh, did a lot of the foundation of the books for sure. Yeah. Created a lot of the stuff. The um, Jim and I didn't see each other for almost 30 years and then saw each other about two months ago. Oh, oh nice. Uh, and got to be reunited at a convention. It's always fascinating to me because for me, he was a, it was a very seminal part of my life because I was being taken seriously as a creator <laughs> and writer and, and so forth. And, uh, and I was curious, you know, when he, when we did get reunited, is, is he going to feel upset with me that I'd stayed behind and he was kind of let go from the company and that I'd had a lot of success undeniably coming out of that, you know, that situation because I ended up writing those books uh, I didn't have to worry about that because he actually didn't remember me. <laughs> ah. <laughs> but, I was going to ask uh, <laughs> if he remembered because you know, that's long enough ago. Yeah, it oh. is thirty years. Um, but, and, and the thing is, once we started talking, once I was telling him about stories, about specific moments, he would remember. It's just he just didn't realize that was me, and he he remembered an event. For instance, uh, yeah, this, without going into any details, but the the time I met Ditko, so he and Ditko were friends, and, and he remembered okay. me describing uh, how that all went down. But um, um, but at any rate, it was. Um, uh, but it turned out somebody did the math. I ended up writing uh, 115, I think, of the 200 books that came out in the two years following Jim's departure. Jeez. It was a lot. Southern Comic Geek yeah. says, was it intentional uh, to rare the gloss and the matte versions of Rise Zero or an accident in printing? When we got the first batch of Rise Zero books in, they uh, there was black smudging on the initial prints. Oh, man. On a white book. And oh, so man. They, so the solution was to... Uh, uh, to do um, uh, a talcum powder uh, pass in between, it, it, you know, I'm simplifying, but it's basically talcum powder pass in between uh, laying down each cover and in the in the uh, binding process. And um, in that process, about halfway through, they I think somewhere in the middle, they realized that it was better to do a um, um, that it seemed to, to get less scuffed on the glossy version, glossy paper. And so hmm. it's a mix of different kinds of cover stock. Yeah, on the coated paper. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So because of that, the matte version became much more rare? If I remember right, yes. They, okay. uh, that, 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 that's the more rare one. Oh, uh, I've signed a lot of them. I even did like... Um, very elaborate remarks because it's got that, that red circle behind the figure. And so I'll put a big bloodshot overlooking him, you know, in the circle. It's kind of cool. Hmm. 
but um, uh, but yeah, that's my my recollection anyway. Kevin, speaking of colors, you you mentioned at the beginning uh, you were like mixing color palettes. Mm-hmm. Is it, so is my understanding correctly that each studio has like a pr- proprietary palette that they use, or is it a palette uh, well, here, for here, each comic? Here's here's what the deal was. So back in when I was a little boy, uh, <laughs> was primarily printed with uh, sixty four colors, and, and so it was. You had um, you essentially had colors that would make up what we call white person's flesh tone. Uh, they, you would have colors that would, would be really saturated, like Superman's cape, which is the same color that is Spider-Man's red costume. Mm-hmm. Superman's uh, blue is the same as Spider-Man's blue on, on his uh, costume. For instance, there was the brown that would be brown hair, or which is the same that would be used for African-American people's skin, that kind of stuff. So there's a set number of colors, and those are mixed by, or, or achieved by mixing percentages of yellow ink, magenta ink, cyan ink, and that's it. And then for the covers, they would do things um, um, like uh, add black. And so if you look at covers, and especially in the 70s, you would see, if you really look at them, like old Tomb of Dracula covers or something, the regular comic book series, you'll see that, that, the, the, that there's almost a painterly feel to it. And that's because those were actually... Uh, done closer to the process I'm talking about, where they're actually painting a a variable shade of gray to represent the magenta and a variable shade of gray to represent the, the blue and so forth. And and they would add black. And the black would give this richness. Well, in the late, mid to late 80s, Kamiko decided, well, we're printing on better paper. We can have another level of color in here. So instead of just having quarter tones, half tones, and 100%, we could have three quarter tones. And so mm-hmm. they had 75% values. And these would be, you might see them sometime, they're, they're called, um, uh, I think the most common term would be color markups, but it, it's basically somebody's taken Dr. Martin dyes and they've colored a, a photocopy. That's and exactly right. Yeah. Out with a line that'll say, this is, uh, you know, C2Y2B. And that would be the... Uh, not, it wouldn't ever be that one, but let's say C2Y2M. And so that would be um, 25% cyan, 25% yep. yellow, yep. and then 100% magenta. And yep. then that would be whatever that color worked out to. And, uh, and so what I was doing was saying, I think I can... So the way that was done originally was, was you would take... Uh, I, I, forgive me if I'm going far too into detail on this, but <laughs> it's getting in the weeds. We're getting but in the weeds. What was done originally is you would they would they would create masks like like cut out masks, and that would hold out against a negative, and then you would take a screen, which is a dot pattern, and you put it behind that, and you'd make a negative, and, and that would be that 25 percent that I'm talking about. And what right. that literally meant was 25 percent of co- ink coverage in that hole. Was uh, it was twenty five percent of whatever you ink yeah. you used. Little dots, little dots, little yeah, dots. in a, in a so closer or further apart, or yeah. bigger or smaller. Yep. And one of the things you had to be careful about is if is what's called a moray pattern, where they they, they would buzz mm-hmm. your eyes. So you would take the twenty five percent would be here, the cyan would be here, the yellow would be forty five degrees, the magenta would be another forty five degrees, and so on. Hmm. And yeah. by doing that, they never buzzed. And the uh, so I'm looking at that and going, I think we can kind of fake that by painting shades of gray and shooting halftones. 
and just like how you would print a black and white photograph in a newspaper back then. And we did a test and it worked incredibly well. And so we started doing that. We started offering that as a service because up until then you were literally stuck paying one of two companies out there a lot of money to create these masks. And uh, one of the studios was a company owned by Murphy Anderson, who was a, a famous columnist. Mm-hmm. Right. And, uh, yep. and, you know, I would always hear that, you know, Murphy had this, uh, you know, their words, not mine, room full of little old ladies sitting there cutting rubolith on, you know, Fantastic Four. <laughs> but yeah. if you look at those old comics and sometimes you'll see, a lot of times you'll see that it's out of register, that the colors don't quite line up right. And there's blue mm-hmm. outside of Captain America's mm-hmm. mask and all that. Sometimes that was just a printing slip, but sometimes it was just because they just did a really sloppy mask. Some little lady wasn't seeing very well. Right. <laughs> Forgot the glasses that day. It's, you put out her glasses well, that day. Yeah. The Friday afternoon car, right? Yeah. Off the yeah, assembly exactly, line. Exactly. It would be tedious. <laughs> and was that automated at all, or like in a like a printing machine that would do it, or would you have to line it up by hand? Or? All lined up by hand. Oh wow. God, you are a jack of many trades. <laughs> yeah, do that yeah, job. I, I like I like to joke that I was a stripper. In the uh, in the nineties, because I worked at a I worked at a printer, and you the the strippers were the one who stripped red translucent tape to to put the negatives in the right place, yep. and those people were called strippers. I did that for about six months. Yeah, a, a very tedious work. Uh, <laughs> no, I didn't make a lot of money. And in fact, I was scheduled for a raise at the end of the six months. And they laid me off, so they didn't oh, pay the raise. And that's that how nice. That's Amazon. how nice the company was. But yeah, that's no poll work. Yeah, all that stuff is all done by hand. Yeah, uh, that it's all put, and and they had this one big room where that had a huge uh, vacuum plate uh, had a glass plate that you it would fold down. You put the artwork on it. They put the glass plate on on it suck all the air out between the glass and the art, flip it back, and then it would be taken a picture of by a camera at the other end of the room. Mm-hmm. That's how that's how stuff like that was and shot. And that, Artwork and everything okay. shot that way. So I took uh, so when I'm when I helped start innovation, we wanted a printer. And so we went to a local printer and I showed them what I knew and, and I said, I think you guys can make our negatives. I think you can do our color separations. And yes. I, yep. I set them up doing that. And then when I joined Caliber Press, I we gave them work. So they printed all of our books there for our, our premium books for a good couple of years. So that, you know, anything we did in color, which Rocky Horror was the first thing we did in color and then graphic music. Um, and then Gary went on to do a bunch of other stuff. That's, that's brilliant work. Figuring out you could do that is Paint that those gray tones. And well, and I, I had a that's a leg, brilliant. I had a leg up on it because they uh, because I'd been a graphic artist and out of the world, but but I um, I knew who had done it, and so I called up Bill Dubay, who had done it with Richard Corbin, and he sent me a spirit cover of color separations to look at. Wow! And, and so you uh, reverse engineered it, didn't you? Yeah, literally, and he knew what I was doing. He didn't do it anymore. And um, um, so if you ever look at Richard Corbin's stuff from the 70s, early 80s, that what he did was he would paint a gray. Oh, my 
God. And then his overlays were all done this way. That I'm That's why that looked awesome. like he was painting it. Yeah. yeah. Because it very was, much so. Wow. So all those spirit covers and the spirit color so section. So all that color was in here. Yeah. Well, that was the thing. And, and my wife That's and I incredible. both were at a point there where you know, we could just tell you that, you know, you know, that that's 25% cyan, 75% mm -hmm. it yeah. was. And Even then I got into film and TV and I, and there, and I'm making color calls for visual effects and I start to do that and I go wrong world. So hang on. <laughs> <laughs> that's what's called additive color. And in film and TV, you work with subtractive color. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's another way of looking because that's how you calculate RGB and it's a different world. Yeah. But uh, so in 96, I, I was doing, um, we were doing all this support for comic book stuff. I was teaching myself film and TV, shot a short film, had interest in it becoming a TV series for USA Network. Um, I, I was too naive and, and my my thing was well i'm not really trying to sell a show here i'm just trying to get some feedback because i've never shot anything and and they were saying it's like no it's great let's 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 do something and i, I kind of got cold feet and um, um but i started shooting my first feature and it took me five years and then we sold my movie called frost portrait of a vampire and frost was based on my comic book and it ended up being the 18th highest grossing directed dvd release of 2003 and because of that, uh, which meant that it, it was doing like, it did like 2.7 million in rentals. Uh, the, uh, because of that, I got greenlit to do another film and then one more film and then a, a deal to do six more uh, as one big deal. Wow. Um, so where does Bloodshot come in on that? And not one of them because Bloodshot was, um, so Bloodshot was owned by Valiant and then Acclaim and then, uh, in nineteen or in two thousand, I made a deal to sell my visual effects house to a company called Film Roman. Film Roman was the animation company that King of the Hill and The Simpsons and X Men Evolution. <clears throat> and I became an employee there and continued to run my visual effects division. They knew I was trying to raise money to make movies, <clears throat> and then they were acquired by a telecom called IDT. And IDT said, "You know, we'll we'll fund your films. Let's let's make movies. This is great." And uh, and, and so we did. And I also said, well, there's this comic book company I used to be a part of that's been languishing in bankruptcy for a while. I'd love to go make them an offer and see if we can make animated movies and TV shows um, based on the, this intellectual property. And they gave me permission. And I, I made a deal with a claim to buy the rights to do everything for 25 grand and 10% of the net. And 45 days later, they went bankrupt officially. <laughs> and all deals in the state of New York were unwound if they were made within the last 60 days prior to bankruptcy. <laughs> so it sat and nothing so, happened and for years. Don't you just love getting the rug yanked out from under you? Like, <laughs> oh, it's, it's uh, it happened uh, to me so many times. It, it's mm. why my back is so sore. And, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. But we, um, so in 2012, two young fans who um, I don't think it's unfair to say came from money or had, had access to money, um, bought the properties out of bankruptcy. Uh, I believe it was a million bucks. And then, uh, um, but just before they did that, another enterprising publisher uh, out there bought the trademarks 
because they had gone unfiled, unregistered. Oh, and, no. And prevented them from publishing for a while until they mm. got their money. And uh, so then they then when they did that, they started publishing, but they didn't really have any money to publish anything because they'd spent it all getting the rights. So it took them a while to kind of get their feet going and, and, and uh, get on their feet and, and do something. And uh, along the way, then they finally got money um, ultimately from a Chinese company called DMG. But they decided to uh, publish the line, publish new books based on the old IP. And uh, they were very aggressive going to um, um, talent agencies like William Morris and so forth to get the uh, to make deals to do um, film and TV stuff. And they have ultimately sold the rights to Sony uh, for Bloodshot. And, um, but that had been, there had been on again, off again, bloodshot attempts for years. In 2000, it was going to be made starring Triple H, the wrestler. And uh, then, um, you know, that went away. And then there was talk of Jared Leto actually being bloodshot at one point. And then it was just, he was going to be in the film. And then he ended up not in the film. But um, uh, but at any rate, it ultimately got made, and I got to go to South Africa and be a, uh, on set. And I did not get um, a chance to work on it as a writer or a creator or anything, but I did have feedback and, and gave them feedback. And, and how close did it adhere to the original? Not. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, that's at one time, single word bloodshot. <laughs> yeah, at, at a certain point, they had redeveloped or relaunched, reinvented, whatever you rebooted the character, and they wanted to do it closer to what they had been doing in the in the new comics. And you know, I, I'm I'm friends with Dinesh. Uh, I think a lot of him and think highly of him. And who's the who was the producer and been a valiant, uh, one of those two young men that had bought the rights. And we were standing in South Africa and, uh, and he wanted to kind of preface this to me, you know, prep me, you know, it's not exactly your character. You know, that's not the one we're doing. Uh, and he, you know, and he said, cause you know, it's like yours was, you know, you, yours was really kind of wrapped up in the whole mafia and organized crime thing. And I mean, like, when's the last time you really saw organized crime as a, as a, as an antagonist in a, in a film or something? I said, Outside of John Wicker Daredevil, I can't really think of anything. And uh, and he was like, "Well, yeah, but that's not the mob. <laughs> it's still organized crime. It doesn't yeah. have to be Sicilian mafioso to be organized right. crime. <laughs> Russians, it could be Chinese, it could be Americans, Mexican cartel, whatever you want. But um, but they also chose to do the newer character, which is a, uh, Dwayne Rosinski did a wonderful job rebooting that, and he did. A, I love his stuff." Uh, my thing, and it's, I have to acknowledge that I know intellectually that part of it's just my ego, but part of it is if I'm adapting a comic book to make a, to spend 80, 80 million bucks on, I think I'm going to go with the one that sold a million copies and not the one that sold 40,000 copies. And, uh, that was my lunch, but, uh, <laughs> uh, but it, it was, um, it was great to see them work on it. It was great to see, uh, them actually take my feedback and do something with it. So I, I saw the first cut and I, I gave them a lot of, you know, here's what I think, what it's worth. And Production I, values were amazing. Yeah, they did a great job. And a, a lot of that is um, by no means just me saying things, but there were, um, they had pulled back on a lot of the superhero stuff initially. I don't know who was pushing for that. 
And it was kind of, in my mind, I kept hearing Jeff Goldblum say, there will be a superhero in your superhero movie, right? And, uh, <laughs> um, and so they, they, they completely redid the ending. And, uh, and it made, made it huge. And it, where it, was, it wasn't before. And, uh, and they, they initially were not doing anything with him turning white or glowing chest or any of that stuff. And, and they did all that stuff. They had the nanites in there, but not to the scale that we saw later. And all that stuff is based on my my book, but uh, um, but it was um, it was it was a great experience. Dinesh flew me and Bob Layton over, and we spent a little less than a week over there on set. And got to meet everybody. We spent uh, some time with Vin, and spent time with um, uh, like I said, met pretty much the whole cast. And the only we didn't get to meet Guy Ritchie or Guy uh, Pierce rather. Uh, he had left literally the day before we got there, but uh, we got to see pretty much everybody else. It sounds like an adventure. It was 24 hour flight. <laughs> I, I had, oh uh, my god, <laughs> yeah, two, two, two 12 hour flights like from here I to Paris. Oh my lord, Paris I don't think I've talked to a single creator who's had their uh IP turned into um a Hollywood production. That it hasn't been warped in some way. Well, um, I think a lot of people. I think there's a, a, a prevailing thought or wisdom, whatever you want to say, that uh, that because they're two different mediums, you have to to make bigger steps to adapt it. I've always said, it, long before Marvel was successful with what they're doing, that if you can stay as close to the core of what why this thing was successful, I think you'll have better luck. And uh, and I think that's been borne out when you watch, especially I, I use the Marvel example because they're so common. But when you if when they hit the tone and they hit the heart, uh, I think that they they usually end up doing really well. Yes. I wonder if the um, the longer form shows now with streaming uh, Netflix and Amazon and so forth will give more opportunities to that. Um mm-hmm year ago or so we watched uh, with my kids the series of unfortunate events and they turned 13 books into 25 episodes I think and they were done very very close to the books and yeah. both I mean both of my older kids and my wife and I have all read the books and we're we were pretty blown away by how close <laughs> it fits the book I and mean, there's some stuff that doesn't translate from the written page sure. to a screen of course so but um, that's one of the Good examples I know of that they 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 did it and it was a fantastic series and um, my wife's a big Harry Potter book fan and uh, get her started if you want to get her started <laughs> I just wonder up oh, hey what's the difference between the the you know the, the Deathly Hallows book and the movie and she'll just <laughs> go yeah. on and on about it my daughter does that too <laughs> yeah. yeah that's not how it happened in the book um, ask her when gandalf saved harry <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> <laughs> uh so i've yeah i that's just what that is an interesting um it's an interesting trade-off i think you know having someone who dreams of my stories reaching the masses um and then them saying hey let's make it into a movie um i'm holding out the, for the musical yeah, the, yeah, Steam Patriots musical would be great. Uh, if Hamilton run for its money. The, <laughs> the, well, the my feeling. my big thing was, was um, you know I started making movies, so I ended up doing I think I've written and directed, edited and produced seven. And I a few years ago I and I and I've done visual effects for lots of movies and TV shows, and uh, it's always interesting because I'll be on set 
on big projects, little ones too, but on big projects where these discussions are being had. And I will always push, you know, if I can, to whatever level I can from, from my position of what I'm doing to let's try to be faithful to stuff. Um, but Because uh, that's what might made it popular in the first place. Right. Well, it's the same that's old what thing. they're buying, and, whether they realize it or not. Sure. That is, you know, they're buying that, but then they, but then they throw away the, the most important parts, which always kind of blows me away that they, that all they're buying is the name. It seems it's like kind of like time. if a video game company were to buy a comic book publisher and then systematically let all the creators go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would never happen. <laughs> like, because after a while, <laughs> they've gotten rid of all the things that made them successful and they've just bought them. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Starting it, it, with the guy who started it all. Hey, Brent. I did what now? Brent. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, Brent's joining us. Brent, uh, if you haven't noticed, uh, the venerable Kevin Van Hook is here with us. He has been talking about his career. Uh, Kevin, if you want to start over, 1981. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's been. Uh, I was born. Yeah. He's a uh, great, great tales <laughs> of becoming an overnight success after toiling for 10 years. And uh, we've been uh, hearing his career and tidbits and uh, nuggets of wisdom as he's been um, creating stories of both writing and drawing and um moving now into the film industry and we've been talking about bloodshot and some of his other films and watching them take his comic book and turn it into a film and having it be changed just a teensy weensy bit uh into a film um uh kevin uh, we are in the last half hour of our show here you are welcome to continue as you as you are, are chronologically with your story i love hearing about it um i love also uh, some of our fans we've got people trying to get into into the industry um, if you don't mind, touch on some just you know, pearls of wisdom for professionalism. Um, and, and one question I had is, is you seem to be a very well-rounded uh, individual. Barb started to say, uh, jack of all trades, um, which has suited you or, or, or done you very well, uh, it seems like. Um, what skills do you recommend folks really refine to get on the resume um, and I don't mean the literal resume, but just to get in, to get in their their toolbox um, to really uh, set themselves just that one notch higher than anybody else to, to stand out from the crowd. So take that question as you may, but um, we continue continue with with your career. Um, no, I, I can answer. Very interesting. To what to what degree I can? The the big thing is you have to realize that. I really do a lot of different things Mm -hmm. and I, I know that I'm unusual in that sense. And so I'm currently, I'm actually consulting with a new company called Viziate out of Jakarta, Indonesia and and, uh, a new comic book publisher. And I'm writing three titles for them. And um, uh, I'm very excited about where that's going. Uh, These guys are um, uh, a multimedia company. They do visual effects, they do animation and they really want to, tell uh, compelling and entertaining comic book stories. And, um, and I find myself because I, I normally, I spend most of my day. uh, Typically I'm either writing, uh, working on a pilot that I'm pitching for a TV series, or I am creating visual effects for a movie. Typically um, action action films, like lots of gunplay and and explosions and smoke and, that kind of stuff. The best kind um, of movies. <laughs> I do a lot of that kind of thing. And um, some are 
um, pretty low budget, that uh, meaning, you know, million, two million, and then some, you know, I worked as a visual effects supervisor on Project Power with uh, Jamie Foxx and Joseph Gordon-Levitt, that was a Netflix original, and which was, you know, like 65, $70 million movie. Um, at the end of the day, it's all the same process. You, you, you try to write the best story you can, you, you uh, plan it, yeah. you cast it, you try to shoot it the best way you can, and then, then, then you cry yourself to sleep at night, hopelessly <laughs> try to make it better in, in editorial. But the, um, but so the reason I say all that is because if I wanted to be the best Kevin Van Hook, the comic book artist that I began my career as, the best thing I would have done is not done all the other things. And the reason that is, is because I'm not, I wasn't able to just focus on it. I, I was, I say this with all minimal humility that it, that it deserves, but I, I was really good at like 18, 19 years old and uh, good enough mm-hmm. that Al Williamson wanted me to work for him as an, as an assistant. And I got a cat climbing my back. <laughs> That's all right. Doing a photo yeah. bombing, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a black one too. I have one. Yeah. And so, but when I started having to make a living, and because I'd gotten married very young and and had responsibilities, I and I and I have a very short attention span. <laughs> I had to learn these other things and. Uh, and then it served me well in the sense that if the comic book market took a downturn, I would go make money as a graphic artist or I'd make money as a visual effects guy or I would be hired to write a screenplay or a teleplay or those kind of things. Um, and if those things weren't playing, then I would uh, um, uh, I would write a comic book or I would draw commissions or those kind of things. And so I can, I, I can usually, not always, um, manage to, uh, to do okay financially during those periods. Um, but, but it did come with the price that, that I'm, I'm not the draftsman that I would have been if I drew every day. And so if, if your goal is that you want to be the best artist you can draw every day, um, be critical of your work, try to, to be better than you were on the last thing. Don't settle for less. Um, Neil Adams was, uh, I, I never had my portfolio reviewed by Neil Adams. I know that Neil could be notoriously harsh. And I know that some of the people who, who he trained were particularly harsh to me and, in, in, in my opinion, cruel. But I did hear stories that, that he would, <laughs> ironically, said to one of these people that, that was cruel to me. When he was reviewing his portfolio, he said, oh, I see you're still settling. And what he went on to say was, you're still accepting that first version of that pose that was in your head, as opposed to pushing yourself to draw it differently. Um, because it really is very easy for most comic book creators, especially people I find from, from my era to draw the same face and to draw the same uh, body type and the same expressions. And, uh, and it's because we were influenced by people, you know, the, I say this with no no malice or anything, but John Buscema was brilliant. Sal Buscema was a craftsman, and I felt Sal was um, did some things wonderfully well, but he wasn't the anatomist that John was. And uh, no, not and, even close. 
He's just not. And and it's But he was again, a good storyteller. I don't mean it mean way. It, it's uh, and it was just real easy to see as I was starting to learn how you could become more like Sal than John. <laughs> and it was that it's mm-hmm. uh, it, there was a level of talent that John had on top of this commence this um, wonderful skill that he had as well. And if if you if any of you guys have ever seen a an original page by John, the back of it was more than likely covered with sketches, and that's because he drew constantly and he pushed himself he didn't draw the same figure of spider-man standing like this he Mm -hmm. drew a pirate you know being knocked on his butt or he drew conan you know standing there holding a woman or uh, he drew a a horse with nostrils flaring and it was every page was that and so i i would say that if you're going to to um whether it's writing whether it's drawing push yourself show your work to people who who have, have done what you do um, editors are important to get their opinions because they can give out work, but editors oftentimes I, I've, I've sat in portfolio reviews or around portfolio reviews and heard the same knee jerk list and it's, and they don't really necessarily understand what they're just, they're saying as much as they're saying things that they've heard art directors and people who did know what they were saying. Yep. So like, yeah, well, you really need to work on your foreshortening and your perspective and your storytelling. And if you were to ever say, what do you mean by that specifically? They would go, well, you know, there's a wealth of information out there on the internet. And it sounds cool were saying it. But if you show it to somebody, you know, like like over the years, if you had shown a portfolio to someone who would, would be willing to give you the time um, that knew what they were doing, you'd get immeasurably valuable feedback. And, so, and I and I get this, I, I get the impression. Um, and correct me if I'm wrong. I uh, play well with others seems to be a great. Uh, <laughs> I feel like a theme because because I mean you mentioned names that Barb knows, that Rob knows, that Aaron knows, and that we that especially in the comics world in the industry. And and I'm I'm very new to the industry. I mean actually having a, a, a comic book. Um, the few in the conventions that I attend. People say, "Oh, I know so and so who worked on such and such," and, then, and they'll either have a good thing to say or a bad thing to say. Usually, um, and from what I'm gathering, is really not so much in the way of leveraging your contacts, but play well with others. Uh, well, definitely. Yeah, I mean, you, you want to, uh, you definitely want to show up, be on time, mm-hmm. be deliver the thing that they thought they were buying. Because one of the toughest things for me as a young artist was my portfolio was better than my work. And that's because when I'm drawing for myself, there was no pressure and right. I had more time and right. all that stuff. And I'm talking about, I mean, I was less than 20 years old, you know, this era that I'm talking about. But uh, that was one of those things I had to learn. Yeah, I I said the same thing. Um, I've never missed a deadline, ever. Um I've always been nice to people um, on my way up because on my way down, they may be in a position of power. So you never want to step on somebody on your way uh, up the ladder because as you're coming down the ladder, they're going up. <laughs> Have you ever heard Wally Wood's story about that? You reserved no. all that for me, didn't you, Barbara? Oh, yeah. <laughs> She's been stepping, yeah. stepping on me forever. Yeah. Got all those footprints, Barb's footprints. Up here. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm taking one for the team. <laughs> so with, um, so, so supposedly, the story was that, that 
Marv Wolfman and Lynn Ween at a certain point uh, basically said, we're not giving work to, to wood, to wood. And, and when asked about it, they, it turned out that they used to show him their, their work and talk to him at conventions and so forth. And he was quite rude. And he would, his running phrase was, never piss on your fans, son. You never know when they're going to be signing your checks. <laughs> and, um, the, uh, I had the privilege of working with Dan Atkins. So one of the things that, that happened that was a positive with me working with innovation, I initially was drawing a book that Tim Truman had co-created and had started and called New Australia. And I uh, initially had an inker that, that I felt, to be fair to him, I probably wasn't giving him everything he needed, but for me at, at that age, I felt like he was inking my backgrounds with an eraser. And so I ended up um, having a choice of who I could get. And I went to Dave and I said, if I can get Dan Atkins for a rate that works, how would you, you you're cool. It's like, I've always heard he's flaky. And it's like, if I can get Dan Atkins to work and his rate works, are you willing to let me use hire Dan? And so my wife and I drove to meet Dan Atkins and, and uh, he became a mentor and a friend and he inked me for a few of those issues. And, uh, and so here was the guy who had inked, just to put it in perspective so people know if they don't know who he was. He had been an art director at Marvel, but he had inked Barry Windsor Smith on the early Conan stuff. He had inked uh, John Buscema on Silver Surfer, some classic, beautiful stuff. He had been a Wallywood assistant. Mm-hmm. And uh, his problem was he, he would much rather prefer... Uh, spending his time listening to his stereo then uh, uh, he was a, he was literally a hi-fi nut so Ooh. when i went to his place his his little attic room was all covered in eggshell and uh, you know like styrofoam yeah, stuff. Egg, 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 yeah. egg, break, egg, egg cartons egg cartons yeah. cut down on the reflected sound yeah. yeah and but he was um and he was jaded about the business but he had, he could draw he could ink and so he would he was a funny guy but he he taught me a lot because I would show him my stuff and he would be a little insulting at first and, and I would kind of push back and, <laughs> and then he would go, it's like, no, this is good. You just don't know how to do this yet. And just little things that, that I, I still find myself showing to people. Sorry for the lighting here, but that's uh, all right. Hey, is, no, you're, I, I, you're on the West coast, right? Yeah. The sun decided I need a kicker. So. Yeah. We've got, I've got no sun here. So, but um, yeah, this one never goes away. <laughs> but um, uh, we, uh, um, he, he would show me things like, you know, ink, penciling or inking folds in fabric that, you know, I was putting an even space between the wrinkles. And he said, that doesn't happen in real life. Why are you doing it? And it's like, well, I just never thought about it. And it's like, and then realizing, yeah. oh, okay, if I vary the width and, and length and boldness of these strokes and, or when I was inking and I was showing him my stuff, he would say, that's a pen thing. That's not a brush thing. You know, stop doing that. You know, and, um, and it, it, my, my work escalated enormously uh, during that time period. Trees got to be but, done with a pen. Yeah. It, and I was using, you know, the, the, the same kind of tools. So I was using, you know, Hunt 102s and Gillette 1970s and all this kind of stuff. And, of course, a Windsor Newton Series 7, mm-hmm. number two and number three. Before they became When they were crap. still good. Now the Raphael's 8404s is what I use. That's what I hear that uh, is the common uh, replacement these days. Yeah, we had, uh, for everybody out there, last week's uh, episode, we had a great conversation with Barb, and uh, Rob chimed in, of course, and all of our artists about... um, 
about coloring and so forth. And we got into the, inking, the inking tr- coloring, yeah. um, coloring and the tr- tricks of the trade. Um, yeah, as we're my area, that's yeah. what I'm doing. I'm doing coloring, which I, I, I'm not really, under, I'm not really sure why I, but, but I'd, I'd be more than happy to show you. I color very differently than everyone else on here. So it would be very different for you guys. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Wait, Aaron, Aaron, that's kind of like an understatement. That's like the, understatement. I do, I do fill in the blank very differently than everybody else on here. I, I try, <laughs> I try. I mean, you know, I, yeah, I, I try to do everything differently. Tell me, somebody tells me what to do. I'm like, that's nip, stupid. I'll nip. do it this way. And um, do it my own way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, um, we the, the clock's ticking down here on the last few minutes. Um, and so I wanted to go briefly, or we can wrap up. However, it wraps up. This has been a great conversation. I love it. But industry, uh, like if you've got some sort of just just something you got to get off your chest or. Or uh, what? What does the indie comic world need to do that you see they're not doing? What uh, What is the the film industry or just the basic storytelling? Is there are there too many cliches out there? What What need what, in Kevin Van Hook's uh, perfect world? In all honesty, I don't look at things that way. Okay. So I, it's just philosophically, it's not how I think. I okay. don't I don't look in terms of you know the, the kids who are on my lawn doing horrible comedy. <laughs> Back in my day. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's just not how I look at things. So, but I, I think that um, I will say that uh, I found it fascinating when I was doing some stuff for DC. I'm going to try to lose the sun. There we go. Yeah, sort of. <laughs> when I was doing some stuff for DC a few years ago, a few years back, I was writing um, Oracle, The Cure, which is a... Um, the character that had been Batgirl had mm-hmm. Oracle, and the idea was we yeah, yeah, story, yeah, story part of uh, Night of the Cowl, and the, the idea was that coming out of the story, she would be cured and she'd be able to walk. And uh, and I wrote the story. I was very proud of it, and I wrote full script. And I opened up the first page with a cutaway view of a tenement apartment building where, on the top floor, you see a silhouetted figure seated. Can't really quite tell what they're doing. And then the next floor down, you see. Uh, a, a kid playing a video game or, or uh, holding video game controllers, but the TV's off and the, the mother's shouting. Next panel down, you see, uh, which is the next floor down, you saw a, a couple arguing. And what it was is the electricity had gone out in the building and everybody's complaining about each other. It's like, it's because you run your stupid hair dryer. You know, yeah. that thing. it's like you and your yeah. video games, you done messed up the whole building. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and running down the sides of the page was an answering machine. You know, you know, hey, Babs, do me a favor, call me back. And it was Dick Grayson calling. It was another one of her friends. So this is all happening. And then the last one down, the last last little answering machine thing was, um, hey, honey, it's daddy. I'll be there in a few minutes. Looking forward to tonight. And then you turn the page and she says, daddy, crap. And she's forgotten. And she's sitting there. And she's yanked all the electricity, all the big cables out of the, the wall. And she's trying to rewire things so she can have enough power to do all of her computer equipment stuff. And now she has to go take a shower and get cleaned up because Commissioner Gordon's going to be there in a minute. But what was, what was fun about that was saying, okay, I could do this a thousand different ways. But why don't I do something kind of rear window-like, do something where we see different people's lives and how our character is affecting them? And uh, and do it as a punchline, as a reveal, so that when you get to that full page splash on the next thing, now we realize, oh, it's her, and she's the one that's caused this problem, and she's the reason the electricity's out, and all that stuff. 
And what I found fascinating was that I did that, I don't know, 11 years ago, maybe 12 years ago. And I still get Twitter comments about that. And when I went to DC to talk to him about doing uh, Martian Manhunter a few years ago, the guy who was, was basically the editor in chief was like, just in the middle of the conversation, it's like, yeah, none of our writers know how to do that stuff. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm sure they know how to do that stuff. And he's like, no, they don't know how to do that stuff. And he said, I have to yell at them to make sure that they list the characters' names in the comic book so people will know who <laughs> these characters are. And I said, yeah, I, I've had to do that as an editor myself because that's extremely important to to make sure everybody understands who we're dealing with because every comic book is somebody's first. Yeah, that's it. Yep. You have yep. to look that way. And there was a reason that Marvel started putting bitten by a radioactive spider, Peter Parker, blah, blah, yeah. blah, at the top of page one. And yep. then I, around the time I stopped reading comics, <laughs> my understanding <laughs> is they did a full page, page one that would give yes. even more backstory. Yeah. Previously on. Yeah. But it was yeah. a... Um, but anyway, my point being, those kinds of things in our craft, with this group I'm working with out of Indonesia, I'm, I'm teaching some young, very, very wonderfully talented young people, but the basic tenets of things like balloon placement, and because a lot of people don't think about the fact that the pointer should point at the mouths of the person that is speaking. <laughs> right. And it's, it's surprisingly not common to do it right. <laughs> and they, uh, and it's not acceptable to put the person on our right speaking first and the person on the left over here with a balloon that crosses we, somehow to uh, do it. We talked about that two, two episodes ago. Yes, yes we you did. Have to be careful. We have to, you have to be careful about where you put, put the people. Well, and that, the that, was, that was the beauty of, I mean, it can work with your writing full script because if the artist follows what you wrote, then mm-hmm. when I'm writing it, I've got the correct character on the, saying it on the left side, they know where the word balloon is going to be. They can put that character on the left. But as a, we, we did all the Valiant stuff plot first. So it would be, you know, here's the plot. It's the description of each panel, but there's no dialogue. I might give you a couple of lines to just get you the feel of it. But it wasn't until uh, those pencils are coming back to me that I would actually literally dialogue it and do my own balloon placements with a, a Sharpie. And, um, the advantage of writing plot first is if they don't draw what I wrote, I have a chance to fix my writing later and make it clear because now I'm writing the final lettering, you know, what's going to be lettered. So. You know, it's funny. I almost think the balloon thing that I reading a, a lot of manga, I started noticing they didn't do balloon tails, the character. Mm-hmm. There's been, and I don't know why that is like, they'll, they'll put like, it's almost like they draw the pictures and they put the balloon placement reading. I mean, they mean right to left, right. but there's sometimes like you, and for some reason you, you kind of get it. You figure out who's talking, but I did notice if there was any sort of tail, it was just a simple line, maybe pointing right. to a guy's mouth, but they rarely did that. And I wonder if the people you're working with were used to seeing that. And maybe this in American comics, there is more of a tail of a balloon. And I'm like, oh, I never thought of that. I the wonder people if that... I'm dealing with specifically that are, are yeah. dealing with the lettering are people that really didn't come out of comics. They didn't. Really oh, okay. All right. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, but but in manga, you'll still, if you look at it closely, you'll still see that it's coming from 
it's still laid out in logical. Yeah, way. it is. And right to left and, and so forth. And I know what you mean, the, the balloon yeah. tail balloons. Yeah, not not as much. I, I was always thought that was always thought that was kind of interesting, um, but yeah, I did notice that. I'll tell you an, one one interesting little anecdote. Um, I was um, di- I was balloon pla- doing balloon placements and dialoguing Eternal Warrior on a on a subway on a path train from Jersey City into New York. And this guy, so it's you know it's it's eight thirty in the morning, and he's standing there rocking and holding the the, the, the strap. <laughs> and he looks down and says. That's Eternal Warrior. That means you're Kevin Van Hook. What? <laughs> <laughs> yep. Said, oh, that's so cool. And uh, he turned out he was a, uh, a painter and named James Brown. And um, I um, I invited him to come by, and he ended up coloring some books for us. So, but, mm. uh, oh, that's cool. Probably that's cool. to call him the, the hardest yeah, working man. work out like that, yeah. Yeah. Huh. But yeah, just <laughs> the odds that somebody's gonna do that. It was it was at a time period where we were selling a lot of copies, so it was it was, and and New York is a very comic friendly place. But uh, I one of my greatest experiences was I had a buddy of mine in from Kentucky visiting, and we hit a um, right in Midtown in Herald Square. Where there were comic book dealers out on the sidewalk at night, and uh, uh, to be fair, I had a valiant jacket that actually had my name Kevin right here. But uh, um, the uh, but I'm standing there looking at books. My buddy's there, and I said, "How much you got on this one?" I held some miscellaneous comic book, and he said, "Fifty percent off of whatever it says for you, Mister Van Hook." (laughs) (laughs) But he he obviously knew our books, and but it it made me huge points with my buddy from high school. That's awesome. Well, um, Kevin, we are at 930 here on the East Coast, and this is where we wrap up. Before we go, I want to thank Daytona Beach Comic Convention. Uh, it's coming up September 10th and 11th. Thank you for all your support for Silverline. Uh, we got Brent Larson here who hasn't gotten to chime in next week. Uh, right. Brent Larson, uh, Kalis in Cape Town, Rory Boyle over there, Steam Patriots, Twilight Grimm, Rob Davis, and everything else, Barb Calvert, Divinity, Aaron Humphreys, Obsoletes. Mr. Kevin Van Hook, this has been a fantastic hour and a half. I've loved it. You are welcome back anytime and we yeah. will continue the conversation well next to a weekend uh if you're anywhere near pittsburgh come see rory and me and roland we got silver line going on this has been a great evening and we always wrap up saying make mine make silver line. it's been great we'll see you next week all right good night everybody Take care. thanks barb thank you guys thanks kevin thanks everybody i appreciate it thank you kevin it's awesome hi i'm greg horn make mine silver line Thank you for listening to the Silverline Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the episode. We know we ramble sometimes, but we have fun. And after all, isn't that what comics are all about? We hope you'll follow us on all our social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, Twitch, LinkedIn, Reddit, MeWe, Gab, and whatever new thing pops up between now and the time you listen to us. Please like, follow, share, and remember, make mine Silverline.